Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. This sermon was recorded during our Sunday morning gathering in West Boise. Everything we do is to help you connect with God, find real community, and discover your purpose. Follow us online at redemptionboise.org or on Instagram at redemptionboise. So uh, we are nearing the end of our sermon series. We've been going through this series through the whole Bible in basically a year. And uh, I made some decisions. Basically, we're still doing the, the Bible reading through the end of December. But I'm cutting the sermon series short because I'm going to take the Acts portion and we're going to push it forward and have a, a special sermon series before Lent um, in January and February on the book of Acts because we want to give it some special attention um, in the new year. So we're going we're to hit Acts real quick in a couple weeks, um, and then we're going to do Revelation, and then basically the story of the Bible we have walked through in a year, and now it's, it's time to move on and work on some other things. We're going to have in between this sermon series and the Advent sermon series, we're going to have a little two-week mini-series in November on the 24th and the 17th that is going to be... Um, a lot about, I think, the direction that God's bringing us as a church. So you're going to want to be here for those those two weeks, the 17th and the 24th. All right. So we have two weeks left, including today, looking at the life and the teachings of Jesus. And if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 26 is where we're going to be. Um, and uh, we're going to be in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 26. I'll give you a second to get there. Um, so we have been, we, we've looked at the Gospels. We've spent a lot of time in the Gospels over the last two years plus that we've been at Redemption Hill. And so I didn't want to spend too much time going through them. Um, and we spent about four weeks in the Gospels just hitting on some main themes. We did the New Testament overview video. I would recommend going on the thebibleproject.com org. It's one of those two. Just look it up. You'll find it. The Bible Project. And I would watch the gospel videos for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because each of them has a distinct format that is written by the authors to convey something particular about the nature of God and who Christ is. And so if you're, if you're not, while you're doing your readings, I want, I want to make sure that you're not missing out on some of the bigger structural pieces. So make sure to watch those videos on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and then we will spend some time next year in the pastoral epistles as well um, to round out a little bit of what we've done. Those, those don't make as good of story. There, there are a lot of teaching, not story. So we're going to hit those in the next year. All right, so Matthew chapter 26, verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Uh, sorry, I think I'm supposed to be doing this for you. Okay. <laughs> uh, is that? Okay. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Okay, this is the word of the Lord for us today. Let's start with a word of prayer. Holy Father, we receive this. 
this story about Jesus and this woman. And we ask you to teach us what you want to show us out of this. Bring to mind as I, as I speak your heart and your words. Holy Spirit, just give me your mind as I, as I preach. And may each of us be open to receive the call that you have for us to be transformed and our minds to be renewed as we read the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this is a part of the Upper Room Discourse. We read a little bit it, bit of it in John a couple weeks ago. And this part is right at the end of Jesus' longer teaching in the Upper Room. This is the last night before Jesus is going to be brought up for charges at the Sanhedrin. And he's going to be arrested and then crucified and then rise again three days later. So this is one of the very last things that we see Christ do. And this woman, she's listening. She's paying attention to what Jesus is saying. She's one of the only ones in the room that really gets what's going on. Um, because she's the only one who does something in response to, this, to what Jesus says. Go back to chapter 26, verse 1, if you have it in front of you. This is what it says. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Okay? You know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus is forecasting and just saying, hey, this week, we just got a couple days. Sorry, I, I said before it was the Upper Room Discourse. This is in Bethany a couple of days before. Um, the timeline is messy across three of the Gospels, so we, it's, yeah, I, yeah we, can, we can walk through that some other time. But um, this is, this is uh, Jesus and his disciples. They're eating at dinner. And uh, there's two days left, Passover's coming, and then the Son of Man is going to be delivered up to be crucified. So imagine you're sitting in this room with Jesus, and he drops this bomb, and the room sits awkwardly for a minute. And then this girl walks over, and you imagine today she pulls out her doTERRA essential oils kit that she spent $1,000 on. And she starts walking over, and she shows up at Jesus' head, and she starts anointing his head with these very, if you know essential oils, they're very expensive, anointing Jesus' head with these oils. And you've got to imagine the awkwardness of the moment is awkward enough that Jesus just said he's going to die and be crucified on the Passover. But then the awkwardness, what the disciples decide to do is they decide to criticize the woman for what she does rather than dealing with what Jesus said. Did you notice that? We're good. Were you just like feeling all sorts of awkward and anxious? You're feeling it. Malia, focus on what I'm saying, okay? Jeez. Jeez. All right. Thank you. My wife is trying to keep me alive. I wasn't going to move much. It would have been funny at the end of my sermon, though. Uh, okay, so the knuckleheads, his disciples, they stop and they criticize the woman instead of dealing with what Jesus says. Isn't that what we do so much? Like there's this moment where God calls us in or there's some pain or some awkwardness and instead of dealing with it, what do we do? We just look somewhere else or we pay attention to whatever happens next and we ignore the feelings that we had. But this woman doesn't miss a beat. She hears what Jesus says. He says, I am going to be crucified. The Son of Man is going to be crucified 
and delivered up. And so she moves forward, and really she's the only one in the room that gets what's going on. She's celebrated in this story, and we've told her story for the history of the Jesus movement for the same reason that we celebrate other stories of people in the Bible. She believed what Jesus said. She believed what God said in that moment, and then she acted on it. Okay, those two things are deeply tied, and we've talked about this over and over again. Your belief is what you do. Your belief is not what you say. Your belief is not what you think. Your belief is what you do. And so what she did was she took this truth that God had laid out, and she acted on it in the only appropriate way. But that's not the only thing that's surprising about this story in particular. Um, We know almost nothing about this woman, okay, which is true of most of the minor characters in the gospel. But this story is different than almost every other story in the New Testament. And I want to ask you, what, what feels different about this story than other stories about people interacting with Jesus? There's one particular thing I'm looking for. Yeah, good job. Who's, is that Amanda? Nice job, Amanda. Just killed it. Yeah, there you go. Yes, so almost all the time people come to Jesus, and what do they do? They ask him for something. They say, Jesus, serve me. Jesus, take care of me. Jesus, show me. And what this woman does, and it only happens two other times in the whole New Testament in, in, in Matthew, um, that we have these stories. Jesus, or Peter's mother-in-law, she gets up after she's raised from the dead and serves him, which seems awkward but appropriate. When someone ser- like brings you back to life, you should be like, could I get you a sandwich? That's appropriate, okay? Like, that's not weird. And then um, we also have the disciples preparing the Passover meal a couple of days later. But there's almost none of these stories that show Jesus being served. And I think that that feels weird for a couple of reasons. The first is that a part of how we see Jesus and how, how we talk about religion is that it's about Jesus coming and being the suffering servant. That Isaiah 53 passage that comes to life in the, in the Gospels is how we see and think of Jesus. We think of him as a servant. And so when he is served, it, sh- it should like, you know, put some lights on in our head that something different is happening here. Because Jesus isn't like the prosperity gospel charlatans out there, okay? He's not like Creflo Dollar asking his supporters for a $65 million jet. He's not like the Pope who receives adoration and fainting crowds at the Vatican when he does mass. He has personal servants and secretaries who keep his house and his schedule. He's not like the culture of Israel in the first century where honor was the highest value. Jesus is literally teaching the opposite of all of those things. What he's saying is that the one who belongs in God's family is the one who serves the most, not the one who has served. And so when you look around in a room, instead of looking to the head of the table and seeing who's honored, you look at the foot of the table and see who's despised. And the despised ones and the servants will be the greatest in this new upside-down kingdom that God is bringing. And so this woman is doing something different here that it pulls back in in many ways that we're going to see. It pulls back the curtain of this new kingdom that's just emerging in the week of Passover as Jesus prepares for his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. There's something special happening here that um, we need to see in what this woman does. In the next age, after Jesus dies, buried, 
raises again to life and then is exalted into the next kingdom, Jesus is going to be placed on a throne. He's going to be exalted as the king over all creation. And all of creation, not just the kingdom of God, will acknowledge that he is Lord. They're going to cry out, holy, holy, holy. So different is the lamb who was slain. He is worthy to receive glory and honor. This slain lamb is a symbol of the weakness of Jesus on the work of his cross. And yet he's being exalted and held high as king over all creation. Weakness brings exaltation. Service brings exaltation. Being despised brings transformation and exaltation. And this passage here is a perfect encapsulation of these teachings about the kingdom that Jesus has been showing them from the very beginning. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount just a couple weeks ago, and that Sermon on the Mount is teaching this very reality that the servant is the one who will be the highest in the kingdom. And so we see here four things that I want you to write down and think about that we're going to learn in this passage about King Jesus and the kingdom of God. And I've got big slides so you don't miss it. There you go. The first one, okay, is service. The kingdom is all about service. There's an important parallel here. Jesus is the servant of all, and he's telling them explicitly, this is how my final service is coming imminently. Jesus is going to serve them in the ultimate way by taking his own life and trading it for theirs. And for one of the only times in the gospel, we see Jesus receive care from someone, and this is for an important reason. She is anointing him with oil, and this, so as she anoints him with oil, Jesus makes clear for, that it's for a reason, okay? So in verse 12, if you go back there, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to preparing, to prepare me for burial, okay? So he allows her to serve him even though he's the great servant. Even though he's the suffering servant, he allows her to serve him. The first, the first reason is the anointing is meant to make clear a couple of things. The first is that he is the Messiah, okay? Like there's a prophecy in uh, Psalm 89 verse 20 that says, I have found David my servant, and with my holy oil I have anointed him. Okay? This was a part of the um, coronation ceremony of the Jewish kings from the beginning until the end of the kingdom. They would bring them forward, and the, the head priest would come forward, and they would pour oil, sacred oil that had been held holy and had, like, they, they have this whole um, way of preserving and, and making this oil that's meant for anointing, and it would be it would be poured out and it would rush over the face and the beard of the king. Now, what does that tell you about this woman? It tells you that she has a special place as God's anointed priest who's been sent to anoint the king. The people who were there would have maybe understood that a little bit, but what was happening here is it's just giving us just a foreshadow that the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is here, the king is right here, and he's going to be anointed with suffering. So when Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die, and then he's anointed as king, what he's telling us is that it's a different kind of kingdom where the king serves and gives his life for the kingdom rather than the kingdom giving their lives in service to the agenda of the king. And the second is this. He's not just the king, but he's the king that serves with an ultimate sacrifice. And the more important you are, the more elaborate your burial is. This is why we still go to 
museum exhibits with pharaohs and their royal courts that have been entombed and embalmed so that their bodies would literally be preserved for 8,000 years. We have 8,000-year-old mummies that are, that are intact. It's just crazy. And so what they would do is they'd spend as much money as you can possibly imagine to have these bodies. Um, <laughs> they, their blood would be drained from them. They'd fill up that, those same veins with as much embalming fluid as they could, and then they would wrap it in these preserving spices so that the bodies would stay maintained. And the more important you were, the, the bigger the monument was to your death and the bigger the monument was to your life. The poor go to the mass graves and the rich are embalmed with spices and oils and big family tombs. We've seen kings prepared to bury, prepare for burial. And it shows us that Jesus is the Messiah, not because he dies, but in spite of his death. Okay? So this is both an anointing for a coronation and preparation for his burial because that's the kind of king he is. You see what God's doing here? He's giving this cool picture where he's saying he's a king who gives his life and that's why he's made king and coronated and that's also why he's embalmed in these in these fluids. Both at the same time he is the king who suffers and dies for his people. And that's just not a nice thing to know, but we also see that this woman has really understood the way of Jesus. She's the only one who got it. In this room, Jesus says, hey, I'm the king. I'm going to die. She gets up and she does something that Jesus told her to do. What does she do that Jesus told her to do? Serve. She took what she had and she used it to bring glory to God. So she's an apprentice of Jesus in service. This woman not only believed his words, but by her actions, it showed that she believed and she did the things that Jesus had taught. And some of you, you believe in service. You think in your head, yes, I, I think that service is right. Um, but the vast majority of people who are Jesus followers have yet to see and understand this central principle of the kingdom, that it is better to serve than to be served. Almost all of the work done by the church in the world is done by a tiny percentage of people. The hardest work that costs time and attention of responsibility, that's done by a minuscule fraction of the people who follow God. Most service is not something that's costly or meaningful. Most service is something that's done out of convenience. Basically, I was there already, and it didn't cost me very much, and so I did it. What we think about um, as pastors and people who lead churches is they tell you, make sure it's really easy for people to serve. They tell you, make sure it's a great, you have a great administration and that you have a good process set up so that when people say, I want to serve, then it doesn't take them very much to step in and do that service. Do you see the irony in that? Do you, do you start to feel that? That's the way most of us serve, only in convenience. Real servants who follow in the way of Jesus shape their lives in a way where they have margin so that they can give away their time and their energy to serve others. I'm, I'm going to ask you this question. I'm not going to ask you to answer it out loud, but I really want you to think about it. When was the last time that you served in a way that cost you something significant? Just, I want you to really sit with that. When was the last time you gave up something precious to you 
sleep, <laughs> rest, your Saturday, energy, maybe a game that you wanted to watch on television or a kid's soccer game that you really wanted to go to. When was the last time you gave up something precious that cost you something to serve? When was the last time that you chose to serve regularly, not a one-time deal that cost you something significant? A lot of times we're like, yeah, I can, I can do that. If it's just once, I can like put up with the pain of showing up and just, just do it. I can like muscle through this thing. Without much cost, I can, I can get there and I can do it. And I, this, is, this is not about Redemption Hill. This is about our hearts, okay? Just want to make sure that that's clear, okay? If you really believe in the words of Jesus, if you put your faith in him and his teachings, your life will be marked by sacrificial service, period. That's how you know if you're in the kingdom or not, is if your life is marked by sacrificial service. What we see in Matthew 25, just a chapter before, Jesus says, well, here's the way it's going to work. There's going to be a a day of reckoning, and you're going to stand before the Lord, and some people are going to say, hey, we showed up, we worshiped, we did some of the stuff. And Jesus is going to say, you're not in because you didn't provide for the poor and the widow and the orphan. You didn't visit those in prison. You didn't clothe the naked. You didn't give food to the hungry. That was the litmus test to see if you got this kingdom thing. This is not just a nice add-on. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if we were servants just like Jesus? And what we see is that the disciples didn't get it right then. The disciples did ultimately get it. What we see in Acts, and what we're going to see as we study it, is that the disciples' lives took lives shaped by sacrificial service. They literally poured out the rest of their waking days, the 11 who survived, and gave their lives so that the world would know the true suffering servant, Jesus. And so I want to ask you, what does it look like for you to really believe and trust God and serve in ways that cost you something? So that leads us to our second kingdom reality that we want to learn from this woman who truly worships Jesus. That's generosity. So I I joked a little bit about doTERRA earlier, um, but it's not a bad way of thinking about the cost and the value of the anointing that this woman poured on Jesus. Mark describes it um, as 300 denarii. And denarii is like, this is literally more than a year's labor worth of, of value. Okay, so I want you to think for a second, what is your val- what's your labor work if you, worth if you worked 300 days a year? Most of us don't work 300 days a year. We work about 250 days, okay? So you work 300 days. What's that dollar number in your head for your time? They didn't have, and it was probably a little bit more valuable then than it is today because they didn't have advanced logistics and manufacturing and getting these spices were incredibly costly and it took a lot and there was a very small amount that was available across the ancient world and it was, they literally had to ship these spices in from the far east on these, on these boats. So like this is, this is incredibly precious stuff and this woman is showing us something important about the king and about his kingdom. It's this. Now, we're going to spend more time on this theme next year, but her radical work of generosity in service to honor Christ was an important expression of what it means to worship. 
So what is worship? Worship is literally ascribing worth. Um, it's, it's when we worship God, we, we demonstrate God's worthiness of honor. So when we take our lives and we worship with our lives, what we're saying is that whatever we do with our lives, that's how worthy God is of praise. That's how different he is than us. That's how good the things that he's done are. That's how thankful we are of what he's done. And so your worship is in a direct representation of how valuable you think God is. Okay, so generosity is an important part of that because it's literally the way that we express the value of what God has done for us. Worship is making sure that we know in our hearts and our minds and our pocketbooks who is truly king, um, who owns all things, and who is worthy of praise. It's all about the position that Jesus has in our hearts. And so what we see with this woman, when she brings this alabaster jar of, for some of you that may be 30000 some of you that may be 60000 some of you that might be $100,000 worth of 300 days wages, but all of that tipped over and poured out on King Jesus, it tells you one thing. There's no question in her mind or in Jesus' mind who's king of her life. Because kings are worshipped in such ways. So often, uh, we think about generosity in terms of fulfilling the needs of people around us. But we don't give generously in our church community because God needs our money. Newsflash, he doesn't. He's going to do his thing with your money or not. Okay? We don't worship because God is wondering if he's worthy. God does not have an inferiority complex. He doesn't need your approval. He doesn't need you to tell him how great he is. He's not insecure, and he's not wondering if we still love him. We make deep sacrifices in generosity in our worship for two reasons. The first is this. God is unbelievably so, so generous towards us, and and that's most evident right here in the death of Jesus. We're thankful and we worship because we're thankful for his overwhelming generosity. So our generosity is always in response to God's generosity. He's provided everything for us, including the faith to believe in him and all of our lives. Everything we have is from him. It's generously given as a gift. And so everything we do in generosity is literally just a tiny pittance of a response back to God for what he's already done. So we're generous because of what he's done, but we're also generous not just to be thankful, but because we want to follow Jesus and be like him. As apprentices, we serve to be like Jesus, but we're also generous to be like our rabbi, Jesus. That's what he did. He took his life and he poured it out generously for us. And so we do the, thing in, the same thing in response to him. And this is, this is a foreign thought um, in our kind of Western Anglo-German mindset. We're, we're committed, as, in spite of our consumerism, in our brains we're committed to frugality and to essentialism. We believe that we should only give and do things that are very worthwhile. We believe that it should be restricted to the thing that is is absolutely necessary. And when we, I don't know if you've ever done this, but like we we require that the people who um, serve others with our money give us a direct accounting for how they spent it to make sure that it wasn't wasted, okay? Like that's the way we think. We're very, we're very efficient. 
Some of you have jobs where you're literally just testing to make sure that people's money was spent the way that it was meant to be spent and that that generosity was not abused. Have you ever given a gift to just honor someone? It's foreign to our way of thinking. We give gifts that are practical and are useful and hopefully won't get thrown away, right? Like that's like, on, as you're preparing for Christmas, that's the rubric most of us use, right? We want it to be practical, useful, and not get thrown away on Sunday, on, on, on Christmas evening. But have you ever said, I just want to make a statement with this gift of how valuable this person is to me? Have you ever felt that? Just like someone you love, and so you, you spend too much money on something that's lavish because you want to see them and show them how much you care for them. That is the heart of generosity. When you give money or give something of, valuable, of value to show how important they are to you. And this is one of the reasons that we're shown in the New Testament that we're not to give out of duty, but generously demonstrate how important Christ is to us. And so sometimes we should just give our time and our money and our lives in a way that just demonstrates how, how much we love and are thankful to God. Not out of need and not out of duty, but just because we're so thankful for what God's done. I want to challenge you, as you think about this in particular, to meditate on God's love for you. The ways that he, the king, has served you sacrificially. And think a bit about uh, where you where you have emulated God's gener generosity in ways that were sacrificial and were built to honor God, I want you to, if you've never done that, I want you to think about that. I want you to start thinking about how does your life emulate the kind of generosity that the kingdom should, should bring into our hearts. So rather than giving to get a memorial chapel in honor of your dead ancestors or a plaque that says generously donated by you give a gift that helps you rem remember God's radical generosity towards you and that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you and for me. Okay, so that takes us to our third. Our third kingdom reality that we learn from this woman that truly worships Jesus. Lavish love. So this sort of gift and honor was, was not normal. It wasn't necessary. It wasn't an average gift. Just imagine um, that you've worked 300 days and the result of that work, and then you pour it on the head of some traveling teacher who shows up in your living room. Okay, so I want you to think about that number. Whatever that number is in your head, that's about a year's worth of wages before taxes, okay? Think about it. What's that number? I think a lot of us would be just like the disciples, and we'd be, we'd be a little astonished. Um, I, I looked up, there's this, uh, let's see. I had a picture here. Eh, it's not there anymore. It's gone. Okay. No, it's not there. Um, so uh, there's this news story from uh, NPR where there's a restaurant in Tampa, and they were looking through their, um, their sommelier was looking through their wine collection, and they found this 1947 double magnum bottle of Chateau, Chateau Latour. And the restaurant priced the bottle at $30,000. Okay? Now imagine we're all sitting around, and someone at the table says, would you bring out that Chateau Latour? That'd be, that'd be delicious. And then they bring it, and... And the, the waiter says, I just want you to know, you're going to have to pay ahead of time for this. <laughs> you're, not, you're not skipping out on that bottle. We will take your Amex black card first. 
and uh, they, they, go, they go run the black card, and then they take that bottle and they pop it open. Can you imagine the pit in your stomach as you watch that bottle get opened up? Breathe for the first time in 70 years, and then gets poured into glasses that are handed to you. How would you feel in that moment? I think a lot of us would be like the disciples and be like, man, you could have taken that $30,000 and done a lot with it. Didn't, just, didn't Jesus just say, give everything, uh, sell everything and give it to the poor? Um, at $1.50 a meal, just to be practical, you could feed 20,000 people with that $30,000. Wouldn't that have been a better use of that money? Where was this lady when we were trying to feed the 5,000? Where was she? We laugh and, and we mock these celebrity prosperity gospel preachers and their $1,500 Yeezy sneakers. But I can just see the headlines. Rabbi who preaches giving to the poor caught with woman in $30,000 jar of oil. Like you can just imagine that's the headline is that Jesus misused the funds. This woman misused funds that could have been used for something valuable. Is this a form of hypocrisy on Jesus' part or is it something else? Jesus makes clear that this moment is not an ordinary moment. Not only is it special because it is a time of festival where the Jews were meant to, to celebrate lavishly, but this time was different and the disciples had no clue why. And this is, this is what Jesus says. Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burials, for this burial. Special times call for special celebrations. You break out the good cigars when your daughter is born, okay? You buy a steak and you get that piece of pie for the graduation dinner. You buy a 40-pound turkey and you spend lots for Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner because it's a celebration. And this isn't just a time that's of celebration, but this is the most significant moment. You have to imagine Jesus knew what was coming, and he wanted to be like, this isn't a normal, a normal Passover, guys. This is the beginning of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God to transform everything. You, you imagine in his heart, he's like, we need to celebrate. And this woman got it, and we see this little taste of the lavishness of God's kingdom, where we don't worry about scarcity. We don't worry about the lack of resources, but instead we live in the kingdom reality that everything is God's. And when it's time to celebrate, it's time to celebrate. This isn't a time for austerity. It's a time, it isn't a time for practicality. There's, there's two reasons for a lavish honor on Jesus. First is he is the anointed king. It's a coronation party for the king who's been, who's been prepared, okay? So this is, this is a celebratory moment. And, and it's also, he, he's the one true, good, righteous king who's the only one worthy of this kind of lavish, over-the-top honor and celebration. And the second reason is this. It's a taste of what God's kingdom is like. God's kingdom's not full of paucity. It's not scarce. It's abundant. The cattle on a thousand hills is all of a sudden ready to be slaughtered. Um, what we're told in the Old Testament is that Sabbath is meant to be a little taste of this kingdom reality. So, like, when, when we celebrate our Sabbath um, between Friday and Saturday, we don't do anything at our house. We try to eat good food, and there's no diets on the Sabbath. I don't know if you realize that, okay? So there's, there's no diets on the Sabbath because that's not what God's kingdom is like. God's kingdom is full of rich beauty. It's full of abundance. So if, if you're going to have a cheat day on your diet, Sabbath is the day. 
So, so what does it look like for us to participate in this kind of lavish love? Um, and I don't have time. We're, we're running out of time. But um, the prodigal son story, prodigal literally means lavish. Okay, so when you read the prodigal son story, it's about the lavishing of the father's gift of mercy and also the gift of celebration on his lost son. That's what the kingdom is like. So we're to lavish worship on God with our hearts tuned towards him. We're to lavishly celebrate God's work at special times. And we're supposed to use Sabbath as a taste of God's lavish love to remind you how good God is and how he's already done the work to provide for us. And so we rest to remember that the work has been done. And this takes us to our fourth and final kingdom reality that we learn from this woman who truly worships Jesus. Sacrifice. There's more here than we have time for, but I want to make sure not to miss this part of the narrative. We see in this woman's worship of Jesus, anointing him with oil to prepare him for death. It's a picture of radical sacrifice. The cost of this oil is not just lavish in that it's not necessary. It represents something of extreme worth to this woman. I don't care who you are. You take a whole year's wages, it's going to cost you something that's really valuable. And you guys know that number in your head, so imagine that number is in your bank account. And then God says, I want you to take that money, and instead of using it for you to buy the things that you want or to pay off your debts or or whatever that thing is that you want to do with that money, he says, I want you to take it, and I want you to put it on Jesus' head and waste it all. Do you, do you feel that sickness in your stomach? You know, whatever that 30, 60, 90, $100,000 is to you. Just being poured out in Jesus' hair, his beard, and his cloak, and onto the floor. This is the way God's kingdom is. It's full of this lavish generosity that's born out of sacrifice. The generosity is not just something that's the extra, but it's something that's essential. So Jesus' generosity towards you really cost him something. It cost him not just his, uh, his place as king over all creation and taking on the form of man and entering into this world with us, but he was then taken and he was stripped of his clothes. He was forced into labor to carry this cross with a back that was shredded bare. Naked, he walked through the streets was hung on a cross, died. It really cost him something, just like it cost this woman. I'm sure this woman felt this kind of torn feelings. She, I'm sure she was sitting there with that alabaster jar, and she, she knew it was the right thing to do when she just, she was responding to this reality of Jesus. But this lavish act of sacrificial love would cost her something dear. Maybe her, a lot of times in the ancient world, like these, these oils and ointments were used to um, hold value because they could be easily stored. And so this could be her savings account that's literally being poured on to Jesus' head. But she believed what Jesus said. She heard the words of Jesus and she acted on them. And there was probably some prompting by the Holy Spirit so that we would see a little taste of this kingdom reality that's coming to fruition in Jesus' death. And when we trust God for our needs, we can make big sacrifices. When we make big sacrifices, 
that's the only time that we know who's really in charge of our lives. Most of the time, we're wondering who's really in charge. We're having a fight between us and God about our priorities and about how we spend our money and our time and our energy. But when you make radical gifts of generosity, what happens is there's no question in your mind and in your heart, and there's no question to God who you belong to. You've paid your dues by showing this lavish generosity to the Father. And so we're called to follow this woman's example as she follows Jesus. Jesus was literally this sacrificial lamb who gave his life, his breath, his place of heaven so that we could have life. And because of his lavish love for us, this woman's action is now a foretaste of the sacrifice that Jesus will make. And we're supposed to be amazed by both of their generosity. And then we're supposed to move from amazement to empowerment. So Jesus invites us to follow him to the cross. Just 10 chapters before in Matthew, it says this, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus shows us that the only way to life is through the cross. And this is going to be a counterintuitive thing, even for those of us with a religious upbringing, because our bodies and our brains are obsessed with one thing, and that one thing is self-preservation. We know intellectually that we need to follow Jesus and deny our bodies and die to our desires, but I want to ask you this question. When did you last do something that cost you something significant? When was the last time you felt like your generosity made you worry? That's the sort of generosity that Jesus is showing us. When was the last time you said no to your desires or your body's desires in service to others and it cost you something significant? Have you ever said, I give up my right to my time to commit to serving to others long term? Have you ever made a commitment to walk with others even when it hurt or it meant saying no to other things? I want you to take a minute. I want you I think for most of us, outside of the duty for caring for our kids and our families, which is a sacrifice, but it's also self-serving, okay? Like our families, they provide for us, and so it's more like a bank account that we're depositing in than something that we're giving to them, okay? So I want to ask you, outside of the duty of caring for your family, are there ways that you have taken radical steps of sacrifice, and the next question is, are there significant ways that God wants you to, to take your self-sacrifice and use it to give others a taste of his kingdom generosity, a taste of the lavish love of his kingdom, a taste of the service that he brings about this transformation in our lives? Here's a few if you're thinking about it. Every teen in our city needs someone to walk through life with them who's committed to loving them and who will show up year in, year out, and show them God's love. There are thousands of foster kids in our valley who are looking to be adopted and to find a family to belong to. Kids need coaches at every sports level who will love them and care for them. The church and the mission organizations around us, they can take your sacrificial giving and they can turn it into provision for the poor and the hungry, the addicted and the incarcerated. And we can take your daughter, your dollars as a body and turn them into gospel coming to life in our city. Our community, Redemption Hill, could take your commitment to show up every week and to serve and see lives transformed through your presence and your service.
with this woman and her story, we see this equation come to life. She was an unimportant or irreligious person. She trusted God, and it transformed everything about her. She was not doing something normal. She was not doing something expected. She was not doing something that she probably even thought that she would do. But she believed what Jesus said. She stepped out and she anointed the coronated king. She prepared him for his burial. She participated in the service that he was giving us. She showed us God's generosity in his kingdom way. He show, she showed us God's lavish love through Christ. And now she showed us how we can live and participate in these acts of faith that God's called us to. So, this is not the sermon I was expecting to give this week when I read this passage, but God just really brought it to life for me as I was reading it. What are you supposed to do with this sermon? I don't think that you should walk away and go, hey, what's for lunch? Okay, like that's, this is not one of those sermons. This requires something of you. You either have to say, you know what, I don't believe Jesus, and I don't think it matters, and my life doesn't need to be shaped in this way of Jesus in service, generosity, lavish love, and sacrifice. Or you say, you know what, I want a taste of that kingdom way. I want to be transformed into the way of Jesus, and I want my life to look like the cross. And so it's going to take some searching and some thinking and asking God, what is this life for? What is my time for? What is my money for? What is my heart for? What is my, everything that you are in charge of and a steward over, God wants to ask, what is it for? We're gonna take a moment here. I'm gonna invite the band to come up. First step is we worship God in thankfulness. We see the work of Christ and our first response is generously lavishing worthiness on God through worship. We just, we exalt him because he's done all this work for us. Second is we serve like Christ. The third is we give generously because God is radically generous. The fourth is we celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and Sabbath in ways that help people taste the goodness of God. So we're going to get better at doing parties. That's one of the good news of this sermon, okay? We're going to get better at celebrating because unless we celebrate, we don't remember God's generosity towards us. We're going to do better at that starting this Christmas. Get ready. It's coming. Um, and the last is I want you to, if you want to be shaped in the way of Jesus, you've got to give of yourself sacrificially so that there's no question in your mind and in your heart who you belong to, what you believe. You can be assured of your salvation not because of what you understand, but because you see the fruit of transformation in your life. That's the gift of generosity as we know who we belong to. So let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for this woman. May she be honored among all generations for the way that she showed us who you truly were. The suffering king who would sacrifice himself so that we may be part of his family. Lord God, don't let this feeling in our hearts go away when we feel called out and invited to a life of real faith, not just ascending, assenting to the, to the fact that Jesus is the king, but shaping our lives in a way that says Jesus has complete say in every part of our lives. Lord God, make it clear to us, make it clear um, with our lives. In your name we pray.
This content is meant to help you understand the Bible and what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. But we have seen that this can't happen in isolation. It only happens in community. We'd love to have you join us at Redemption Hill or a church local to you that helps you grow in following Jesus. Drop us an email if you have any questions for our teachers to info at redemptionboise.org.